Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, have you ever wanted to listen to a yogi to speak to an actual yogi who is gifted in the yoga arts? Well, today's guest is just that. We have on the show Yogi Anand Manrotra. Anand and I spoke about how to experience God consciousness, how to touch your higher self, the importance of meditation in the process of self-realization. And this is one of the most interesting conversations I've had on the show to date. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome the show, Anand Marotra. How are you doing, Anand? I'm very good, Alex. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so excited to talk to you. Uh, I've, I've, I've actually watched you from a couple of shows on uh, uh, Gaia that I saw, uh, Rhoda Dharma and the Yoga Sutras. I think that's the Yoga Sutras are uh, the Yogic Path. The Yogi Path. Yes, the Yogic Path. Excuse me. Those were the first. I think that was the first time I was introduced to you and your work. And then um, when I launched my show, I was like, I have to get Anand on the show. And here you are, my friend. Thank you. I'm very happy that you launched this show and you got to this, see those uh, shows on Gaia. Yeah, absolutely. So first, how can you discuss how you began your spiritual journey? I, for me, I think, uh, I think we all start our spiritual journey when we are born. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment we start to develop any awareness, we ask questions, start asking questions as young children. Mm-hmm. And then for me, it's just that it was never lost. I was a privileged and very blessed to be born in this place where I was in Lakshman Chula, Rishikesh, you know, and I was, uh, my Guruji was there. So he was the first one after my father and my, of course my mother to see me. He's the one who named me. His name was Ananda Swarup. You see his picture mm-hmm. right here. Uh, and uh, he's the one who named me. So I grew up you know, uh, surrounded by people who are very aware of their spiritual journey and, uh, you know, the symbols were everywhere and I was exposed to the teachings from a very young age. So the questions were never suppressed, but rather, you know, you were inspired to ask and encouraged to ask those questions and discover. So, you know, I was, uh, for 18 years, I was, you know, with my guru. And then when I turned 18, he transitioned from this physical form and then I went on 
the journey alone and I traveled all over India. Before that, I was mostly here in Rishikesh and up in the mountains in Badrinath, the abode of Babaji. I see there is a beautiful statue of Babaji there. So I spent a lot of time there in Badrinath with Maharaji and Gangotri Gomuk area where the source of Ganga is. And so uh, being exposed to the teachings from an early age really helped lay down the strong foundation for me in this life. Now, there's been so much talk over the over the centuries about gurus. And there, you know, in the West, the, the guru is been bastardized a bit as far as the name and the use of the word. Everyone's a guru if they know something. What is truly the definition of a guru from your point of view? You see, for us, guru is really an expression of nature. It is embedded the guru tattva is a quality of nature. It is expressed, it is embedded within the manifest reality. Mm-hmm. For the manifest reality supports evolution, progression, growth. We are here to learn and to evolve. And nature supports that. So embedded within nature, within this manifest reality, is the Guru Tattva, meaning that expression of creative intelligence that supports our growth supports our evolution. And that tattva is then expressed in bodily form, in human form. And in that, when it takes the human form, it becomes the guru. Ultimately, the guru is uh, pointing to only one direction, and that is to, to your own very self, for you to discover the deeper and deeper aspect of yourself. And of course, we can use that word, you know, there are, you know, chef guru and all kinds of things which are used in the West, but that's, as you said, it's a misunderstanding of the word. You know, in India, it's not so much, emphasis is not so much on the idealization of the guru, but rather the focus is on the process of learning and the process of maturing for the student. For my guru always said, there is ultimately no guru. There is only a golden chain of students. And the ultimate guru is the unborn. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate guru, the causeless cause. And anyone who has a cause, who can locate a cause, is a student. So in our tradition, we say as much as we say there's a golden chain of guru, we actually look at it as a golden chain of students. Everyone is learning and growing and discovering deeper and deeper value of the infinite within their finite expression. Is that including the guru himself or herself? But- Within, within, within each and every one, Guru himself and herself as well. So uh, there, I, I've studied uh, Yogananda and Yogananda's works over the years. I'm a very big fan of Yogananda. And he actually introduced me to the East as he was supposed to, uh, <laughs> into the teachings. Um, can you define what self-realization is? You see, the whole, uh, that is the fundamental value of life Mm. is the self. Everything becomes evident to the self. And it is the self that remains unknown. If the self remains unknown, then everything else that becomes known to the self cannot be complete. There is always a certain level of avidya and ignorance that remains. So from the yogic perspective, the nature of self is Atman. Mm -hmm. And the nature of Atman is Brahman. Mm-hmm. 
Brahman being the cosmic self. So the nature of localized value, that's you and I, what your podcast is called soul, soul is Atman mm. in Sanskrit. And so the nature of Atman is cosmic. And it is not a belief system. We can't just believe in that or agree or disagree. The point is to realize that because beliefs are only required when you don't know something. If you know something, you don't need belief. So belief can be a precursor to knowing. Beliefs are helpful if they move you in the direction of knowing. And hence, as you see in the teachings of the great master Paramahansa Yogananda, there is technology, techniques to realize, to know that which you long to know. You know, not just belief, but to intimately gain knowingness towards that knowingness of who am I, because that's the fundamental question. Who am I? Why am I? What am I? Where am I? You know, what is the purpose of all of this? So all of these questions are fundamentally based upon knowing of self, for everything else is secondary to self. Self is primary. Only self is self-evident. Everything else becomes evident to self. So it's the journey of knowing oneself and as one knows oneself, one realizes that there is no such thing as an isolated self. The isolated self is merely a hallucination. And one starts to go beyond the ego and one starts to discover, become aware of one's own Atman nature. And as one becomes aware of one's Atman nature, it naturally propels one in the direction of greater unity, one's own cosmic self. So that's the journey of self-realization. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. From our perspective, the journey itself is infinite. It's an infinite game. So it's not a finite game that you realize yourself today and that's it. I'm done. You know, even with Paramansa Yogananda who was a great avatar, he never stopped his practice. He always kept his technique, his sadhana going. He always took time for his own seclusion. He always took time for his own meditations. So all our masters, they have always, you know, my own guru, there was not a single day where he missed his practice. You know, so the self-realization is an unfolding journey that keeps on unfolding because the nature of self ultimately is infinite. So you keep realizing, and in that realization, there is a greater and greater liberation that starts to become available to us. What I find fascinating is the difference between believing and knowing, which is a fine line. And it's difficult to, at least from my experience, difficult to distinguish. It was more difficult to distinguish before when I didn't have a knowing. But within my own practice over the years, I fought, and I, I consider it kind of almost like a falling into a knowing where I know certain things like the universe will unfold the way it needs to in the benefit of my journey as a soul through this life. That is a knowing. Before, it was a belief. But once I opened myself to that knowing, things became easier. Things became calmer. Uh, I became more empathetic. I became more loving. I became all of that is when I started to feel the knowing. But for many years, I felt that I knew the knowing. 
the ego knew the knowing, of course. But when you go down to that deep level, and it's just like no one can move you from it. You could someone can talk to you for hours, days, weeks to convince you other. But for you inside, you just like, but that's not the truth. It's like the sky is blue, the sky is blue, the sky is blue. Someone could tell you the sky is pink all they want, but you go, dude, the sky is blue. <laughs> exactly. So what do you so what for people listening, what is the difference between how can they tell the difference between the knowing and the believing of the the knowing? Because there is a distinction. As you said, you know, the you know, Patanjali was one of the great masters of the yogic tradition, who wrote the Yoga Sutra. In that he says one of the biggest obstacles to knowledge is knowledge itself. Right. So the big, one of the biggest obstacles to knowledge is the idea of knowing. What we realize, you know, when we look at the world, we see that there is so much strife and struggle and war in the world. And when you really examine the people fighting and organizing and the different ideologies, it's not the war of right versus wrong. It is the war of right versus right. right? Both all the parties involved have a fundamental belief systems that they are on the right side. And that's why the wars can stretch out for so long. So, you know, what we believe, these positionalities we take, we have to really examine them. And this fine line that is there between where you can, you know, fall into either the knowingness or fall into the ignorance, you know. So avidya in Sanskrit is not the state of not knowing, but rather it is the state of incorrect knowing while believing it is the correct knowing, right? So it is, so we say always here in our tradition that instead of trying to be right, we have to be passionately interested in being wise. And wisdom requires silence. Wisdom requires relinquishing all attachment to different positionalities. It requires you to open up to a different inner spaciousness. And that's why Practices are required where we begin to transcend the thinking mind, where we start to become aware to the dimension within us, where we are not the thoughts, where we are not the conditioned belief systems, where we are not the stories that we have been fed, where we begin to disidentify from all the data that we have accumulated in the mind. That is the idea of knowing, right? And as you begin to open up to that inner spaciousness, their knowingness starts to penetrate. It starts to bubble up within us. And as you said, in that knowingness, there is deep humility. In that knowingness, there is ease. The greater the ignorance, the greater is the arrogance. The greater the ignorance, the greater the noise. The wiser one will always be silent. Inwardly, not silent through force, though I must keep quiet or I don't give my opinions. No, no, no. Inwardly silence, it's like, as you said, when you see the sky is blue and there are three people arguing that it is not, you remain silent because it's, it's, it's funny, right? It's the truth. It's truth. It's truth. Yes. It's, it's liberating. It liberates you inside, but at the same time makes you very much at ease with the isness of isness. You have nothing to prove anymore, right? In the idea of knowing, you're always struggling because you're always trying to prove yourself to be right, 
because fundamentally you do not know. And so you, for you to be right, you have to have this, the other who, you have to prove that other to be wrong for you to feel secure in your positionality. So in the knowingness, that struggle naturally eases off because it is an inner maturity, you just see it. And that is true power. That is true power. In that power, there is no resistance. You are not resistant to any outcome of the future. Because as you said, then you really know that the universe is your ally. It's not an affirmation merely. It's not just something you, it's not, you know, something you've read on a book as a nice quote. It is something you know intimately as your breath. It, and that knowing liberates you. It truly liberates you. you can, so we can check in any time. If we have true knowingness, it has to accompany a state of deep inner silence. It has to accompany a state of inner ease. It has to accompany an state of humility, a sense of greater peace within your own heart. And if your knowingness is not accompanied by a sense of greater peace, then we have work to do. It is so funny because when you meet people who have that knowing, and I've met them through either older people, there's a, there's a wiseness there. There's, a, there's that strength of knowing that they have nothing to prove. There's a strength that you, that, that energy, that vibration is something that you feel and you feel when you're in their presence. Uh, it's, and, you know, I've never been in the, in the presence of a master uh, or a guru, but I could only imagine that is like a true, like, like a Yogananda. Like I can only imagine what it was like to be around someone like him who had such a power, but it's a quiet power. And I think that was the, such, such an important thing. It is a quiet strength within them that no matter what they say, the sky is blue, whether you like it or not. <laughs> water is wet. Whether you, that dry water, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I also... I've been meditating for, for a few years now, and I wanted to ask, what part does meditation play in the process of self-realization? It's one of the foundational practices on the path of self-realization. For the knowingness cannot occur as long as there is no silence. When we are not intimate with the silence within us, that field of silence... We cannot have enough space between the I amness and the content. Mm. Otherwise, the seer remains the scene. Right? So the observer remains identified with the content. We remain identified with the content of our consciousness. And so, in order for us to really gain knowing of ourselves, we need to go beyond the content that is constantly floating within our minds, within the field of our consciousness. And that's one of the fundamental functions of meditation is to help enliven our awareness beyond the lower content, which is constantly floating around, and to make us available to that level of witnessing, to that level of finer seeing, where the seer can begin to see beyond the immediate content that floats around within his or her field of consciousness. And that begins to open up the possibility of transcending our own conditioning, transcending our false identity, being able to see our own programs and how we react, you know, how we get triggered and how we design our own suffering. Uh, possibility opens up. So, you know. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Our wish is that everyone in the world should meditate, discover that place of inner stillness. The world will be a much better place. Took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say the world would be a much, much better place if people meditated more. Um, in the in the show that I watched, The Road to Dharma, uh, which is a beautiful show, I recommend it to everybody listening to watch it. Um, you go on a journey into the Himalayas with students of yours, uh, and many of them were wishing there would be more yoga uh, and things like that, where you were truly being their gurus. Your, their guru and challenging them and testing them uh, in their own journey to self-realization. What I noticed was that most of your students, if not all, had negative stories or stories that they told themselves that they were fighting through to find that truth. And that's what I found interesting, that you were poking holes in those stories during the journey. Some were not very happy about that, by the way. Uh, but uh, but why is it that we tell ourselves these kind of limiting stories? Might not be negative or just limiting stories that stop us from moving forward, not only in our life but in our spiritual journey. See, it's the nature of the lower mind. The lower mind has a negative bias. If you examine the content of your thoughts, of the involuntary thoughts that the mind generates, majority of the involuntary thoughts that the mind generates are of limiting kind, right? Either they will be limiting or they will fall in the category of craving or aversion. That's the nature of the lower mind. And if we are not, if we don't wake up, to our own truer nature at a younger age, we start to believe in this content. We start to believe in this, this narrative that is being woven by this kind of these cobwebs of thought. And then, you know, as we mature and our brain starts to develop a certain level of maturity anatomically, you know, in our early 20s, starts to get to 21, really reaches that anatomical maturity, it starts to get really hardwired that identity which actually on deeper examination is not to be found. But because we haven't examined and nobody has spoke that we have been taught to be busy, externalize, all our senses are designed to be externalized. So we remain constantly to escape ourselves, right? Because you, when you go looking, you find these cobwebs and you don't want to be there. So you keep yourself busy trying to get somewhere. And while you secretly know what, where you're trying to get to is actually away from yourself. So... Obviously, when we dive deep within ourselves, it is a little bit uncomfortable. You have to go through that fire to discover your own gold, you know, and that's an essential part of the journey. It's not an opposition. It's just part of the journey. When we begin to realize that, you know, as he said, like if you want to swim across the Ganga, you're going to get wet and you will feel cold and there will be times where you will feel very, very tired. And so that's just the part of the journey. Some people might feel less cold. Some people will feel more cold. But that's cold you will feel, you know, irrespective of who you are. And so these identities, these conditioned uh, ideas of self, you know, when challenged, obviously one of the first things that we go to is blame or we, because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We want to react, you know, like it, 
teenager with aggression or indifference or tantrum. It's just so as a teacher, when you are in those positions, when you're leading, you just have to be inwardly compassionate and outwardly disengaged with that aspect, you know, not affected by that. And internally, each and every one of us has to be ready when you begin your journey that you will face that a little bit of discomfort. And when that arises, you shouldn't be surprised. You just innocently favor your journey, innocently keep favoring your technique, your sadhana, your practice, and you will prevail. You will prevail. That is the law of nature. Staying power equals deserving power. Now, when, when we speak of masters and spiritual leaders around the world from every denomination, from Jesus to Muhammad to Buddha to, to, uh, to Yogananda to your master, um, in the West, there is a preconceived notion that if you're a guru or a master, you must be born this way, that you come out of the womb fully realized and you're completely, you are divine. Where, because I always love, even when I was being raised in the Catholic tradition, you know, Jesus was born 30 years past, and then he's the master. But they don't talk about the 30 years. <laughs> they don't talk about what happens during that time, which has always been a problem with me when I was when I was growing up. Even at a young age, I'm like, what happened? There's like, he just showed up. So can you talk a little bit about the path of that self-realization, that self-mastery? Because there is that kind of myth in the West that all masters are born that way. But from my experience and from my studies, it is the opposite, that they have to work through their own, their own path. And through that path is how they self-realize and are able to teach from a much deeper place by going through their own fires, their own journeys. Because like you said, if you're going to um, swim across the river, the Ganges, you're going to get wet. No matter who you are on the planet, if you swim across the Ganges, you will get wet. So whoever you are, there are certain pains, certain fires that you will have to go through in order to find self-realization, to find self-mastery. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this idea of greatness thrust upon a soul, right? undeserving <laughs> greatness thrust upon a soul is a kind of a safety mechanism of the ego. Because if masters are just born, then, okay, you know, he or she was just born that way. And the ego can remain in that self-hating game, right? Can remain in that smallness. And so the Atman can be suppressed. So it is in our tradition, in the yogic teachings, right? So that's why there is teachings and practices, you know, practices. Even in the greatest scripture on yoga, which is the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna and Arjuna are having a discussion. Right? It's a samvada. It's not Krishna just lecturing. Arjuna is asking questions and ultimately Krishna is, Arjuna is asked to take action and he has to you know, do the work that is needed to be done. Even the story of the Buddha. You know, he's living this sheltered life and then he encounters the reality, the bubble bursts and then uh, you know, he, he goes through his trials and tribulations. He tra travels all across India. He met different masters. He learned to meditate. He learned different practices. Some worked for him, some didn't. And then he came up with his own system through all his learning. He came up with his own system. That's why he taught meditation, because he had learned meditation. 
Right. He didn't. He wasn't born you know? with the knowledge of meditation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, he taught the Vedic knowledge in his own unique manner. So if you look at even the story of Paramahansa Yogananda, he's having those inner experience and he's longing to come to Rishikesh. You know, I was thankfully born here. And so he's longing to come to Rishikesh and he uh, can't get here. Right. He gets on the train. He can't get here. And he, you can see his own struggles that he has had. And even when he went to America, you know, you hear his struggle that I'm tired of trying to convince people to love God. Right. <laughs> Where he was yet. So even as a great master, he went through those challenges. Even Buddha, you know, his own one of his own cousins, you know, Ajata Shatru tried to assassinate him. Or there's a story of Buddha where he, you know, he had reached a certain majority, hundreds of, you know, thousands of followers already at that time. And then there was this big battle about to happen in India at a certain time. And a king was taking his army to attack another. And Buddha went physically himself to stop. And he laid down on the road. But he couldn't, right? They just went the other way. And they still had their own uh, conflict. So there's, we have to be, when we realize the, the realness of it, then it makes it you know, very intimate and accessible. And this idea of thrusting it away, it keeps us in a kind of a caricature. It's a cartoon character, right? Which it's kind of safe for the ego to keep it away, keep that illumination and that kind of living from a place of inner unity away from oneself. And then can keep us trapped within the small eye. And so in our teachings, we always you know, speak of that it is, Tattva Masi, that is one of the great Upanishadic teachings, thou art that, you know, that thou art. And now you, it's your job to realize it. And these are the teachings you must, as everyone else, you must get to work, you know, everyone, Krishna included, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Hanumana included, even not just, you know, in the Puranas of India, there is Hanumana, one of the great heroes in the Ramayana, which is this great epic, right? Mm -hmm. And so Hanumana is one of the deities, you know, he's an expression of personified, you know, uh, perfection of love and strength. And then you have Hanumana who encounters Rama and Hanumana because of his own mischief, he's born with this great realization, but because of his own mischief, he forgets his own essential nature. And then he encounters his master, Rama. And through being with him, he starts to do the essential practice and slowly, slowly starts to regain his memory of who he really is. And, and that makes, enables him to jump across the ocean. I mean, it's a metaphor. This journey of how you can forget who you are and then this realization of who you are unleashes this incredible amounts of power in you. So each and every one of us has it accessible, the point is, are we willing, you know? Do we have enough self-love to deliver ourselves the highest gift that life has to offer? And do the work that it takes to do it, because it's, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, we, we just have to be interested in doing the work, and we have to let go of the idea of whether it is difficult or easy. These are pointless ideas, right? Oh, it's easy. If somebody says it's easy, it doesn't mean anything. And if somebody says it's very difficult, it doesn't mean anything. Right. It just is. You know, it's like on the road to Dharma, you're going to, you know, walking up to the Kedarnath, it just is. 
Kedarnath doesn't say, hey, I am a difficult temple to get to. Kedarnath is just a temple in the Himalayas, you know, and you have to trek up 21 kilometers to get there. And it's, for it's some, it's, some people are just running up and some people are struggling, you know, and for the same person, it can be difficult for first one hour and then they can get this wind and get inspired and all of a sudden it's not difficult. So we have to let go of those ideas and we just have to keep leaning in the direction of of uh, parishrama, proper effort, proper knowledge, and uh, you know, inner sincerity. Inner sincerity, that is the key. Where we are not doing it to impress anyone else, but to, that's really the true self-love, right? That is mm -hmm. the truest self-love when you realize that you deserve that freedom within yourself. That you deserve that that great gift within yourself. It's truly the highest expression of love. When you say the word freedom, I found that very interesting because when I was telling you my earlier journey, finding freedom is a freedom is a certain, there is a freedom when you have the knowing inside of you. Can you kind of dive a little bit deeper into that inner freedom? Because when you say freedom, that means you you associate freedom with not not free, either being imprisoned or being uh, controlled or being some other thing that you're not free. So my interpretation is that you're trying to free yourself from, you're not even trying to free yourself, you're trying to reconnect with what you truly are, and that this is a suit, this is a character, this is a face that we put on while we're walking the earth, but not to forget who we truly are. And I use the analogy of, of actors and, and a movie because I come from the movie business. So if you're a scene in a movie, an actor goes, he plays his scene. He could play the good guy, the bad guy, doesn't even matter. But when the scene's over, he's now back to being an actor. The insanity is the actor who believes he's the character and doesn't want to leave the character forever. And that's where we are in. Is that a, a, fair, a fair analogy? Yeah, it's a beautiful analogy. I think it's a beautiful analogy. You know, it's a, you know, uh, I speak of it too, you know, in that uh, we get invested in the movie when you go watch a movie and you have to suspend disbelief in order to enjoy the movie, right? So as an audience also, not just as an actor, but as an audience also, you have to suspend disbelief that you have to get invested in the story, you know, almost fully, not totally, but almost there to enjoy the show. Otherwise, if you just sit there and say, hey, it's all fake, it's, you're not going to get any feedback. There's going to be no you no pouring in any energy, and so the system will not complete itself. For you to enjoy the movie, you have to, to a certain level, forget that it is not real. And for you to have, whether it is a drama or, you know, uh, or a horror, even a horror movie, you have to suspend this belief, and you have to forget that it's daylight out. You have to believe in the darkness of that cinema hall and all the creatures that this shows for you to have that chemical reaction in the body. So it is, you know, this to free oneself of a limited state of consciousness, right? Because ultimately all life is, is nothing but an experience within our own consciousness. So we are free or enslaved to the degree our consciousness gives us permission. What is the state of our consciousness? So free here is not just freedom, free to do whatever I want. We are already doing that as a civilization. And it's not working out very well for yeah. most of us. You know? So it's about 
gaining and refining one's own consciousness state for all life is an experience within one's consciousness. And that's where freedom starts to occur, where the parameters, the bars, the walls are not of a self, but the, of your own consciousness, the narrow bandwidth of your consciousness, which does not allow us to see behind the veil, which does not allow us to see who we truly are, which keeps us encased within narrow parameters of thinking, of identity, of ideologies, and this perpetual state of existential crisis. So it is an essential, what we speak of freedom is freedom from self, from the bondage that self generates, from the false idea of self. You see, we are all in, imprisoned by our own self. And, uh, you know, this false self is the prison. And that false self was created by family, society, cultural, all these different ideas and maybe traumas that have happened to us during our life, correct? Yeah, it's just time. Time creates false self. Because there is time, in time there is memory, there is the state of knowing, and there is a state of not knowing. And so if the Atman, which enters time, it starts to engage in the field of diversity and it learns. And in that process of learning, it also learns that which is not to be learned. <laughs> it comes along with the package. <laughs> it comes along with the package, right? It's because this is the field of duality. If there is going to be light, there is going to be a shadow. If there is going to be a night, there is going to be day. This is the field of duality. So because there is a possibility of growth and incredible expansion, there is also has to be a possibility of regression. Because if there was only the possibility of progression, we would not know what progression feels like, what it looks like. So for us to know progress, we need to know what is not progress. This is the field of duality. So here we learn that is relevant. Like this is, we are having a conversation which is deeply moving and inspiring. And also we have conversations in our life which are depleting. So we oh, know yeah. that contrast is needed, right? That contrast is needed. So in the field of duality, it just happens. It's just time does that to us. You know, this is the price. Misery is the price that infinite being pays to play someone. <laughs> this, this, there's a price to pay. There's always a price to pay. Always a price to pay. I've, I've realized that in my, in my few years walking the earth. There's always, no matter what you want in life, no matter it, there's always a self, you want self-realization? There's a price to pay. You want, uh, you want a better career price to pay. You want a better body price to pay. You want to, you want to go out with a girl. You got to go ask her price to pay. You're going to, you might get shot down. These are the things that there's always a price to pay. <laughs> yeah. There's always a collateral. Right? You have to, there is a field of duality for you to receive. You must give, you must yeah. complete the circuit. If you don't, if you're not willing to complete the circuit, then you can't move forward. Um, we've used the word consciousness a few times in this conversation. I'd love to hear your definition of consciousness. Consciousness, you know, in the simplest way is uh, the consciousness is within what, which any experience arises. And uh, consciousness is through which the experience is known. Right? So in this very moment, there is experience, mm -hmm. and there is the knowing of the experience. So we are having an experience, but we are also aware that we are having an experience. So for us to have an experience, there are, the consciousness is prerequisite. Without consciousness, there cannot be any experience. 
And without consciousness, there cannot be any knowing of the experience. So consciousness is within which all experience arises. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It is through consciousness that experience is known. And ultimately, it is of consciousness. Consciousness is the fundamental substance of which all experience is made of. So is it similar to the old, I think it was Zen, Zen Buddhist or Zen, uh, Zen story of if a tree falls in the, in, in the forest and no one's there to hear it, did it really make a sound? Mm-hmm. You need the consciousness to be, or the consciousness in that scenario would be your hearing in order to, because the event happened. But if there's no one there to witness the event or experience the event, that's the consciousness. If, if I, there is a report. If there is a report on an event happening, that's already consciousness. <laughs> right. So we are, we are having a conversation. That is happening. But both of us are having a conscious, someone sitting in the back seat saying, we're having the conversation <laughs> and aware of the conversation. Aware of, of the conversation. So that's consciousness, right? Consciousness is through which all life is known. All that we know is consciousness. All that we know is consciousness. So when we use the word subconsciousness, I like to use the word sub-awareness. It's still in your consciousness, but it's not known. So we make this distinction in India, chitta and pragya. Mm -hmm. So consciousness and the knowing quality of consciousness, that is pragya or Mm -hmm. awareness, right? So consciousness, so even within when we talk about in Western psychology, the conscious and the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind is structured still in consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's not structured in some stone. It is still in consciousness, but it is sub-awareness that you're not aware. Now, when you start to, let's say, culture your awareness, that is through meditation, through spiritual practices, through inner work, as you start to culture your awareness, you start to expand the bandwidth of your knowingness. And as that bandwidth of your knowingness is expanding, that which was sub-awareness starts to also come within the field of your awareness. And that's where you can feel troubled a little bit by your own self. You can start to see things which you didn't want to see about yourself, right? But therein lies the great opportunity for you to totally begin to transform and do away with those parts of you which were really designing your own suffering and suffering of people around you. So that's awareness. So knowing quality of consciousness we call pragya, awareness. And consciousness itself is chit. Or chitta. And, and when your subconscious starts getting meshed into or becoming aware of your subconscious, the ego will fight tooth and nail to stay. It doesn't want to go down that road. It doesn't want to live. It doesn't want you to be self-aware. The ego wants you to stay in the I. Yeah, right? the ego exists in the state of ignorance, right? You can only stay. The ego is a hallucination that Atman has, mm-hmm. right? So you don't have a soul. You are a soul. <laughs> because if we say, oh, my soul, then we say, where is the I who has the soul? Because when I say my shoe, I say the shoe in relationship to me as this body. So they, I say my shoes. So when I say my soul, that who am I who has that soul? So I am the soul. I don't have a soul. I am the soul. And I express as this body. This body is awesome. I express as this body. And that's why when I shift, make biochemical changes in this body, when I work with this body in an intelligent manner, when I breathe intelligently, when I do the breath work, 
I have shifts within myself. I have experiences within myself. My body generates certain biochemicals, which gives me certain experience. So there is a correlation even on a physiological level because the Atman or the soul is not just sitting in the body in some particular location in the organ. Right. The soul is expressing as this body at a certain bandwidth, certain vibrational reality, right? Just like an atom at a certain level shows up with a certain cluster of atoms show up as a molecule and certain cluster of molecules show up as a cell. The atom within the cell is still atom. It is not dissolved into its atomic nature. It maintains its atomic nature while simultaneously expressing as a molecular level and a cellular level. So right now we are packed with atoms, but thankfully we don't see that in each other. So there is a dimension within our own body where the atomic reality is the predominant thing, but we need to dial into that level. So we are the soul expressing as the body at this level. And we tune in, then we are expressing as the energy. As we tune in, then we're expressing as the great wisdom. As we tune in, then we express as bliss. You know, so it's just at different wavelengths of our own being, these different aspects of ourselves become more predominantly expressed. All happening within consciousness. Now, I've heard you discuss a term called crisis of meaning. Can you kind of dive it a little deeper into that? You see, as I said, the Atman has a hallucination, which is the ego. And the ego is what? It is this false idea of self that Atman has because the Atman does not know itself. It looks outside and starts to create this idea of itself and a haphazardly put together idea of self, which is incomplete picture of oneself, which is the ego, which exists in a state of disconnect because it exists in a state of disconnect. It is perpetually experiencing life as an existential burden. So it looks for meaning. Why am I here? What am I doing? What, am, what is my self-worth? What should I do with my life? Am I worthy? Am I likable? Right? So I struggle. The I struggles to find meaning of its own existence. Why does it struggle to find meaning? Because it is experiencing meaninglessness. You see? It goes in and experiences meaninglessness. So it goes looking for meaning. It goes looking for meaning. So there is a crisis of meaning. Now, there is an opportunity there. And that's where the invitation of self-realization happens. Because in that self-realization, meaning starts to happen within you. Then you're not having crisis of meaning. Your action is not being pushed back by crisis of meaning, but rather an experience of meaning. It's not the knowing of meaning, but this meaningfulness, you know, meaningfulness starts to happen. Now, in the state of crisis of meaning, then the ego mind generates ideologies. It generates false belief systems. That once I get there, then I will find the meaning of life, whether it is happiness, whether I would, I would say, yes, now I have arrived or whatever. It's constantly doing that based on its own conditioning, right? And then it sets up all kinds of systems to protect that fabricated meaning. It creates systems to indoctrinate the young ones to chase that meaning while always knowing that's really not working out because if it was, the meaning, then it wouldn't need protection. Right. right. Meaning, if it was truly the meaning, we would not need to create indoctrination. We wouldn't have to fight to protect that meaning. For truth needs no protection. Right. See? And so the 
the ego is perpetually in a state of crisis, the egoic self. So it's never satisfied, doesn't matter. It is never at ease, doesn't matter what it, where it gets to, what it achieves. It's constantly has this existential restlessness within its own being. See, So we have to begin the journey as we start to go to that, transcend this isolated self and start to experience a certain level of inner connection, meaning is born. Meaning starts to be experienced. And what we have is a meaningfulness. And you can be sitting by the side of the river and you feel it's so meaningful. And you can be seeing the sun setting and it's so meaningful. And you can be serving, you know, somebody helping someone cross the road and it's meaningful. There is just being yourself, there is a meaningfulness that starts to flow through your life. You're no more chasing meaning, but experiencing a meaningful life. And that's a profound shift. We are home then. We're not trying to get home. We are home. And that's where I find that meditation is so powerful because it, it is the, the one thing that I've found to quiet the ego. It quiets the monkey brain. It quiets the, 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 the noise because you're able to at least within my practice, able to go into that place where there is no time. Time doesn't exist. Uh, it is a, a darkness, but a loving darkness. And, and it's this beautiful place where I call it dipping your toe in the universe. Uh, it's this beautiful kind of moment. It's like, ah, and it's, you come back from it and you feel blissful. You feel uh, re-energized. That's why I've, I know many people um, who are heavy meditators who will sleep two hours, but meditate for five and they're good, <laughs> you know, and, they, and they're not sleeping. They are meditating and it gives them an energy for sometimes they'll go two, three days without sleep, but they have to meditate every few hours and it just keeps them going and going and going. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's, it is the one thing that I found that really does quiet the ego. And, and that's the other thing. A lot of people have a myth. Again, here in the West, we have this myth that one day you will release yourself from the ego. And from my understanding is as long as you're here, the ego will always be there at different variations, uh, at different levels. It could be very, very, very tiny that has no voice whatsoever because you are so in truth and so enlightened and things like that. But there's always something here while you're here. Is that correct? See, the ego dissolves in the, uh, because then once you'd seen that, and it's about gaining inner maturity, mm -hmm. because ego ultimately doesn't exist. Right. Right. It has no existence. It's the hallucination that we have, we as Atman have. And we, that hallucination only maintains as long as it is not exposed to deep examination. So that fabricate itself can only maintain itself as long as you're not looking. When you start to look deeply, you can't find it. You can't locate that self. So it dissolves. Now, once we have gone beyond that egoic self, then the true work begins, the true learning. Right? That's when true evolution begins. Because as long as you are in the ego, you're not really interested in self-realization. Ego is because you're too trapped. So the prerequisite for that progress in the journey is 
going beyond the ego, beginning to go beyond the ego. And there are stages within our own journey, right? So there is the egoic identified consciousness, there is cosmic consciousness, which you said, you know, so beautifully, tasting the, this loving darkness, which is the cosmic consciousness. And then you have God, Goddess consciousness, which Yogananda speaks of very eloquently, an autobiography where he speaks of Divine Mother appeared to me in my attic, right? So Divine Mother appearing to him, that's God, Goddess consciousness, unity consciousness, and Brahmstiti Chetna. So there are stages within our own consciousness that start to become available. But it is very much true that the sincerity fluctuations that we have, where you can be beyond, you can have this cosmic consciousness experiences, and you can feel, yes, I'm on this high, and then the ego, boom, comes. So there is this fluctuating moments which happen on our journey. So it's consistency is the key, right? As you stay consistent and in, inwardly sincere, then it just begins to fall away, it starts to get chipped away, you know? So instead of, it can be slight greasy stuff still left, and as long as you keep washing, ultimately it starts to come off, you know? <laughs> now, I've heard you discuss a concept called surrendered action. What is surrendered action? Surrendered action, surrendered action. You see, so I, we speak of, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna speaks to Arjuna, karmanyavadikar ste nafaleshu kadachanan, that your duty, Arjuna, is to act. So the, your action belongs to you and the fruit of your action belongs to me. Act you must. And that is a liberating place to be at, you know, where you are not bound by the fruit. And your duty is to do the action in the best way possible. So that what we surrender is the attachment to the fruit. And what we focus on is the action itself, the brilliance of action in the here and now, fulfilling the need of the hour in the most elegant manner. And in that, there is great liberation while you are acting. Not in your, your action is not a waiting room anymore in order for you to get to that result you know, you hope for, and that's why you're acting. So what you are logging in while you're acting is stress, is wasted time, because all action is in time. And as long as you're not getting there, you are here and here is not worth it. You're wasting here. And so surrendered action, while we rejoice while being here, fulfill elegantly the need of the hour, and we delegate authority to the universe to deliver the result. Another delegate authority. Total delegation is required. Surrender. Surrender is the delegating authority where you are not being a control freak. Yeah, that's the thing I've I've discovered as well is allowing. Uh, I I've, I've been saying for a while that uh, I chop wood, carry water. Uh, that's what I I chop wood, carry water. Now where the wood and the water goes is not my business. Uh, it, it will. I just trust, and I know that the universe will unfold in the way that it needs to unfold. But I do need to work. I do need to do action. If I don't do, I can't just sit there and wait for someone to knock on my door with an opportunity or for something to happen in my life. You have to be acting to give the universe the, the ability to open these doors for you. You have to walk if you want to go somewhere. <laughs> you, have to, you have to take a few steps, one or two. You can't just you know, transport somewhere, uh, generally speaking. Um, Nobody can be inactive, you see. We, right. we cannot be inactive. We are an activity. We are an activity of the whole. 
Right. So this whole, you know, when even when we think we are being inactive, we are actually being active in that supposed inactive state. There is still activity there, and there is still choices being made. You're just going and going in a direction you don't want to really go. So it's, you know, because we are in time, and time is activity. Time is change. So whether you like it or not, time is happening. And in that time, either you can lean actively in the direction of progression. Or time will drag you in the direction of regression, but activity will happen. So surrendered, progressive activity is really the key. You talk about the divine order of things because we kind of touched upon it now with doing the action, and and then you worry about the universe, the the God or universe, the fruit. You let them to worry about. You let it worry about the fruit. I've come to realize in my path again that that there is a divine order, that if you start looking back in your life, even the bad things that happen to you, there's a a hindsight window that you look back and go, you know, that was probably the best. I got fired from that job. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, I broke up with that girl. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me. But at the moment, it was very painful. So even the bad things that happen in your life, there is a divine order that is for the benefit of my soul's journey is what I've discovered through my path. Can you touch upon the divine order and that kind of blueprint that we walk into this life with? You see, that's a sign of maturity that if we are making progress, then it is bound to happen that when you look in the past of your life, then your natural attitude has to be of radical gratefulness of, wow, to be able to see the unity threads that have actually supported you, those dark nights of the soul, those challenging, painful moments, and how they have been catalysts of, you know, of healing, of progress, of realization in your life. And so if we, when we look back at our lives and we still find complaints there and we find blame there, then we still have work to do. So maturity will naturally unfold in when you look at your life in the past, you will feel a sense of deep gratefulness and a learning and educated gratefulness. And when you look towards the future, you will have surrendered rational optimism. You know, you will have surrendered optimism. Why? Because that's the wise position to take when it comes to time. Or when you take any big slice, enough slice of time, then you, fall, you realize that things work out. From Big Bang to now, things have worked out. From helium, hydrogen, you know, no matter which, creation theory you buy into, they're all theories ultimately. But let's say we, you know, we agree to agree on the big bang, some helium and hydrogen to this complex multicellular being writing poetry, making movies and making podcasts. Things have worked out. You know, Earth has gone through different cycles. Things have worked out. There was a time when there was just dinosaurs walking this planet and asteroids hit and, you know, 85 to 95% of all living complex life was wiped out. And here we are. If we were as a reporter reporting at that time, then all the headlines would be the world has ended. You know, yesterday, that would be the last headline. And yet here we are. So if we take big enough slice of time, you will find that order is born out of chaos. That is the law, that is the creative intelligence at work. You know, the whole tree comes out of the emptiness that is embedded within the seed. So there is a finer intelligence that work, and it requires a great introspection and great humility to begin to really see that, that intelligence at work. Now, that doesn't mean we don't lean in the direction of the right. We do our best, but we have to, at the same time, know the limits of our intellect, 
that we cannot compute the whole variables that are at work at any given particular moment on our planet, on our solar system, and forget about our galaxy and the intergalactic space. There are the infinite variables we are talking about. No matter, no computer can compute that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, no brain can compute that. So we have to realize the limits of our own intellect. And uh, in that, where we can accept that, and then the unknown becomes our ally, right? There is, that, there is a, a creative intelligence which is organizing this whole intergalactic universe, which is at the same time, you know, organizing the solar system and this galaxy and this universe and the multi-universes. They are all being organized, and they are being organized not from some outside, but they are being organized from inside out. We live in a self-organizing universe. It organizes from inside out. Just like our bodies right now, you and I are talking and all the listeners are listening, and our bodies are just being organized from inside out. We are not, you know, a holograph where, where the, some kid is sitting somewhere and playing video games with us. We can verify that from our own inner knowledge. It doesn't matter what somebody says. We can know that intimately, that there is not a remote controller elsewhere because we make choices and we struggle with choices every day. And we see the consequences of the choices we make. So there is a, you know, we know that there is a self-organizing system. And uh, we have to realize that, you know, the timelines we are dealing with is humongous. (laughs) We are dealing with a lot of space and a lot of time. Time has a lot of time on its side. So if you take big enough slice of time, you find that there is an incredible harmony of design. And that's in our traditions, we have yantras and mandalas, where when you look from a myopic view, from a close thing, you might see this lines crisscrossing and it makes no sense. And you have to dial out, you have to dial out, and then you start seeing this form emerge, right? And if you dial in, you can't see it. So you have to gain distance for you see, do you see this mandala that is there? And it, it, it blows your mind, a phenomenal order, right? That comes like prime numbers. You see the prime numbers and then you can't locate the prime. But when you come out, you can see that there is a certain pattern in which they emerge, even though the pattern is very difficult to locate, but it emerges. So it's, you have to gain distance. And as you said in your life, then you, you have gained a certain distance from your ego self and you've gained maturity within yourself, you're no more in that narrative where you were the victim, where you were the effect, not the cause. You have transcended that positionality in your own consciousness, and you have matured. So when you look at your life, you can see those challenging moments as gift. And that's a clear sign of your own maturity, that you have grown. That's a testimony that you have grown. You have moved in the direction of true intelligence within yourself. Because if we are looking back at our lives and we are still burdened by our past, then we are really trapped by our own thinking, right? Because ultimately, memory is an interpretation of events within our own minds, right? Right, right. You spoke of chaos, and my friend, we are in some right now. The world is is, uh, going through something that I've never seen in my lifetime. Honestly, I've never seen in the history of written time that I can tell where the environment is, 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 is effect is being affected economies. We're on the brink of a possible world war. There's a pandemic that has affected the entire planet. 
at the same time, there's so much chaos. What do you think is happening to humanity right now? Is there a great shift? Is there something? I mean, there has to be, I feel there's something happening. There is a a rising of consciousness. Something has to be going on because my God, you can't ignore it. I mean, it's, it's almost unignorable the amount of things happening to the planet all at the same time. You see, there is two things. One of the things is there is definitely we are shifting from yugas. You know, we are going from Kali Kali energy to more Dwapara bright energy. You know, as the master of Paramahansa Yogananda Sri Yukteswara shared. And also, we are living because we are living in this Dwapara beginning stages. You know, within the uh, Kali Yuga, we see a Mercury age. So there is a lot of reports of everything. So you know, we are bombarded with information. So we are also dealing with access of information where you, you know, a cat is stuck in a tree and so you know about it. Somebody has tweeted about it. So you get to, you're bombarded with a lot more information than, you know, 50, 60 years ago. So there is a lot of both aspects. There's a lot of people doing incredible stuff and being of general, you know, phenomenal kindness and doing great things. And there is also people who are, you know, designing their own suffering and suffering of their fellow beings. So we are going through a peak time where this is an exciting time to be alive. This is a, the future is bright. You know, if we can just get our act right. And, the, you know, when I say that our act right, it's not about, oh, that you have a responsibility to fix everyone. That's the way of the, you know, we don't need to tr- fall into some kind of messiah complex and, you know, start yelling at everyone else, you know. I think it's an invitation. It's a great phenomenal opportunity for us to really grow and for us to transform and for us to be of service wherever we are to, you know, sustainable change happens from bottom up, never top down. And each and every one of us, you know, is the center of infinity because infinity center is wherever you are located. That's where infinity is centered. So each and every one of us represents the center within which the whole infinity is accessible. And so we begin with where we are. It is a phenomenal time of great opportunity. We live in this Dwapara Yuga where the possibilities have opened up phenomenally. And uh, we are overall in a progressive time. And, uh, you know, wherever, when there is this big change about to occur, positive change, that's when the resistance is at its strongest. So we are having old systems and old ideologies and, you know, ways of governing and all kinds of identities collapsing. So there is that challenge is there. And uh, it will take, as far as the political scene, it will take some generation for it to change, at least one or two generations for the whole political, because, you know, new children will be born and new form of governance will emerge eventually, right? Democracy and communism will give way to something of a higher value. We don't need to discuss that right now. But these times are a great, you know, times of initiation, right? Uh, when you go through any initiation period, it's challenging. It requires you to really step up. It requires you to really go through that process in the deepest way and learn and do the right thing. And that's what this is asking us to do, to organize our individuality around love and then organize our communities around love. And organize eventually the ripple will happen where the our earth will be organized around love. You know, the future is bright if you are willing to see the light, you know. And I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions, ask all of my guests. What is your mission in this life? 
my mission is you know to keep moving in the direction of my own inner unity and keep radiating that out and serving all those who are willing to be served you know fulfill the need of the hour and be of service in as much as i can be while simultaneously awakening more and more my own inner potential and what is the ultimate purpose of life the purpose of life is to live live in greater and greater unity for that's where purpose is discovered know yourself self realization if you will yeah. <laughs> keep knowing and, and self realization not as a destination but as a unfolding journey yes i think that's one of the biggest lessons we can pull from this conversation is enjoy the journey not the destination and i think so many of us focus on a destination but as you get older when you start reaching some of these destinations you're just like okay now what <laughs> but if you would have actually enjoyed the path which you're on the, you're on the journey much lo- much longer times than you were ever at the destination always that trip up to the to the um the, the monastery or the uh, in the himalayas the monastery is the monastery mm-hmm. yeah when you're it took you a lot longer to get there than you probably actually stayed and a lot longer to get back down. So if you didn't enjoy the journey, you're struggling most of your life, most of the time that you did this. <laughs> now, where can, where can people find out more about your, your work, your books, um, your yoga, your academy? Um, you know, they can go on sattvayogaacademy.com. They can find all this stuff there. Sattva Connect, a lot of online classes and stuff. And all the information about books and podcasts should, will be there. And I will make sure to put that all in the show notes. Uh, Anand, it has been an absolute honor and, and privilege talking to you. It's wonderful having, going into the deep waters of, of, uh, of spirituality with you, my friend. I truly appreciate uh, you being on the show and for the work that you're doing in the world. We need, we need more of you, my friend, in the world. So I, I truly appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. It's been a great joy, and I appreciate everything that you do and that you stand for. And I'm very much full of joy to see your work radiate out and touch many lives. That conversation really, truly touched my soul, and I hope it helped you on your path as well. I want to thank Anand for coming on and sharing his wisdom and his wonderful energy with us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, you can head to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 052. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.